my every day I stray further from God's light. There was a woman outside our building this morning on the street corner just dancing to nothing for three hours because, wow, is methafun drug. And one of our residents went out there with a stereo because he's like, well, she may as well have something to twerk to so she doesn't look crazy. And I almost peed because I'm a bad person now. And that's... So that's that's your daily tale of the Bronx. Oui, c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory. I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. Hey everybody, welcome back to Fat, French, and Fabulous. I'm Jessica. And I'm a deeply overworked version of Janelle. Luckily, however, we're doing a Jessica episode today, a continuation on off of our pre, uh, previous week's episode on the FLQ, the Front de Libération du Québec. Jessica had to do the research and I just have to say the offensive, career-ending things. The second wave of bombings began in earnest around 1.45 a.m. August 22nd, 1963, with an attack that disabled an important bridge across the St. Lawrence Seaway in the hopes of blocking the shipping channel. This failed because the bridge had been raised to allow a grain carrier to pass at the time and wound up stuck open rather than stuck closed, merely disrupting traffic rather than disrupting trade. That's that's just bad terrorism. That's just sloppy terrorism. I can't respect that. In October, Le Cagnier, the FLQ's very own magazine, began to discreetly circulate, featuring fiery rhetoric against the Anglo oppressors and their francophone collaborators, as well as handy terrorism tips, such as suggesting that interested young Quebecers get together with three to ten of their most trusted friends to form closed radical cells of their very own. That feels like a deeply illegal thing to advise. Canada has always had restrictions on free speech, and I feel like form a <laughs> radical terrorist cell to, with three to seven of your Frenchest friends is, it feels illegal. They actually also, in 1966, uh, had a high school edition that encouraged uh, radical separatism, but uh, toned down the encouragement of criminal activities, you know, for the kids. That being said, my favorite my favorite was the university edition, which contained the words, quote, It is time to melt your pens and turn them into plastic bombs, end quote. <laughs> How much plastic is in a BIC? I want you to know that that is in all caps. <laughs> is the type of plastic in a BIC pen the same as the type in plastic explosives? I can't Google that without going on a watch <laughs> list because I live in America. But... <laughs> I feel like that's not true. I I just... No. <laughs> I mean, this explains why they're so bad at terrorism. They're encouraging high schoolers and college kids to commit acts of terrorism with office supplies. Uh, <laughs> who knew that Canada's greatest terrorist ally was Staples Business Depot? Yeah, the pen may be mightier than the sword, but it's that's not usually because you can use it to blow up a school. <laughs> I'm no longer surprised that they bombed a bridge while it was open. On January 30th, 1964, around 8 a.m., members of a new group calling themselves L'Armée de Libération du Québec, the ALQ, committed an armed robbery of the Fusiliers' Mont Royal Armory, ca capturing the guards, tying them up, and leaving them in the basement. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's not at all what I thought you meant by armed robbery. I thought this was like a rob a 7-Eleven to own the Anglos type situation. No. <laughs> they performed an armed robbery... 
on an, a fully armed armory. <laughs> uh, they stole 59 Belgian semi-automatic rifles, 39 millimeter Sten machine guns, though only five had breech block mechanisms without which the others could not fire, four .303 caliber Bren machine guns, three with breech blocks, four field motors, sans motor, motor bombs, uh, three bazookas, sand rockets, two brownie machine guns, 11 walkie-talkies, and a buttload of ammo. Does Canada just keep all of its most expensive weaponry in the middle of an open field? How do you- Was this armory a bouncy castle? <laughs> what? <laughs> Were the guards, like, sugared-up toddlers? <laughs> My living room has better security than this. February 20th, just before 8am, the ALQ struck another armory, that of the Royal Canadian Artillery in Shawinigan- uh, 130 kilometers northeast of Montreal, again tying up, blindfolding, and leaving staff and officers in the basement. They smashed the place up, defaced portraits of the queen, tagging the building with the later's ALQ, and loaded the weapons into a waiting truck. They stole 33 Belgian FN semi-automatic rifles, uh, three 9mm pistols with the firing pins removed, walkie-talkies, and a Gestetner printer. One, how dare they, printers are expensive. <laughs> Two, how dare they, Queen Elizabeth is an angel. But three, it's incredibly weird to think that this took place almost 70 years ago and it's the same queen. <laughs> right? Like, at one point when I was reading this story, like they're like, oh yeah, it was the queen's 38th birthday. I'm like, holy shit. Holy shit. <laughs> Time just moves at a constant rate. <laughs> She's older than God. You know, God looks pretty good for his age, but... <laughs> <laughs> but not as uh, good as Queen Lizzie. Champion of not dying, Elizabeth Windsor. She knows she's got a couple more years until we begin to question her unnatural life. <laughs> when she has to go underground to hide the truth. <laughs> yes. Yes, when she reaches 112, we're gonna start asking questions. Just, she's, she's too well-preserved. Her, her husband, for one, looks like he's already got formaldehyde in him. Oh, so. he he, a, a thousand percent is now getting some sort of unnatural life from a stone. Like, there's not a chance <laughs> that that man is kept alive by biology. <laughs> no, it's, it's pure Frankenstein science. The reason why England is so rainy is because they have to use a regular bolt of thunder into his body in order to keep him going month after month. It's because God's crying because Philip's using the philosopher's stone to live past the age of 4,000. Defense Minister Hellier ordered increased security on all armories in Quebec or near its borders, which feels like it shouldn't have needed to be said, and the armory raids stopped. But the ALQ remained at large, continuing to commit other robberies. Uh, finally, a roadblock following an April 9th armed bank robbery in the small town of Montroland pulled over a white Pontiac with three men inside. A search of the car discovered what is known as a pull-through, a device used to clean machine guns. Under police oh. questioning, the youngest suspect, René Dion, 17, confessed that the Pontiac was stolen and that they had been robbing banks to cover operational and personal expenses, including renting apartments in Montreal and hideouts in the surrounding countryside. Oh, he he just gave it all up. Just just spilled his guts. They had nothing, dude. Anybody could have a need to clean a machine gun. 
It's not yeah, suspicious. It's it not weird at all. <laughs> uh, the oldest suspect was Jean Gagnon, 26, older brother of Francois Gagnon, currently imprisoned for his part in the Westmont mailbox bombings of the previous year. A receipt in possession of the suspects led authorities to a residential garage in Montreal containing most of the equipment stolen from the Shawinigan Armory. I will say, it's kind of incredible that a bunch of college students who robbed a whole bunch of money and guns decided to commit a politically motivated act of terrorism in the interest of easing French oppression, rather than just being Scarface? Because I feel like <laughs> that's what I would have done with it. I have all this money and all this guns, all I need is a pile of cocaine and a mental illness, and I'm pretty much good to go. April 13th, the police arrested Claude Perron. 19, and issued warrants in the names of André Watier, uh, 23, and Robert Houdon, 20, brother of Gabriel Houdon, founding member of the FLQ, currently in prison for the death of Wilfred O'Neill. Watier was hunted down and arrested May 4th in the small town of St. Hyacinth, east of Montreal. Uh, it might be St. Hyacinth, but I'm not sure. I'm uh, gonna say St. Hyacinth because I'm Anglo as fuck. Because as we discussed in the previous episode, my French family, instead of fighting for our noble French heritage, decided to just blend in with the Anglos as hard as we could. My father's name is Jean-Paul, but he didn't know that until he was 34. <laughs> because his family called him Paul. He didn't find out till we moved to Manitoba and he had to get a driver's license. <laughs> See, I actually have an uncle named Laurent. And that's not his first name. His first name is Joseph. But he didn't know that because no one just bothered to tell him. <laughs> he didn't know that until he found his birth certificate. Because <laughs> they didn't think that was important to bring up. <laughs> they came up with creative ways to abuse their children in the 60s. Identity crisis was the least they could do. <laughs> there wasn't a lot on TV. You had like maybe three channels. <laughs> you just had to psychologically ruin your children. That's why they had so many. So, like, you could pick the ones who seemed especially fragile and entertaining to just devastate psychologically, but you could still raise a couple of them to maybe look after you when you're old. Yeah, you come from a family of, like, nine, so, you know, I wouldn't... <laughs> There's a decent chance that you're talking from experience, although for, I know for a fact you're not the future caretaker child. No, 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 that's shale. <laughs> <laughs> We've decided. <laughs> that's, that's her job. I don't know if she wants it, but that's what she's getting. <laughs> she's too responsible. Always has been. <laughs> yeah, your parents would be, like, kneeling, leaning on the call button because they've fallen and you're just out in the yard filling a kiddie pool with room temperature milk. It's it's not. <laughs> yeah, I'm just barking at magpies. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a safe situation for anybody involved. People at the hospital are trying to contact me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, God. Police captured Udon, the younger, in Montreal the next morning, who surrendered and led police to a residential garage on De La Roche Street that contained ten homemade bombs and most of the weapons stolen from the Fusiliers Montreal Armory. Eight hmm. young men in total were arrested for their membership in the ALQ. Maurice Leduc, a friend of Udon, claimed that he had participated in one of the robberies unwittingly, having agreed to wait in a blue truck Watier gave him the keys to on a specific street for two hours, 
until Watier, Udon, Gagnon, and Dion arrived on foot, carrying a lot of very full bags, then drove them to the Delaroche Street garage. Le Duc only later heard of the robbery on the radio. <laughs> he and Dion became crown witnesses and testified against the rest of the gang in return for suspended sentences. <laughs> because, you know, my friends so frequently give me the keys to a vehicle I've never seen before, and then ask me to sit in it on a street for two hours by myself. That's a normal thing that friends ask of you. I'm I'm thinking, Janelle, that maybe you just aren't a very good friend. <laughs> oh, I just can't drive. <laughs> and you can't drive. So it's like a combination. Not only are you too credulous, but you're also useless. <laughs> Oh, we're going to get caught when I'm trying to figure out how to get the car out of second gear. I'm going to be doing <laughs> shoulder checks when the police arrive. It's not. <laughs> you're just going to like back it up slowly, inch by inch. You're going to take a deep breath and then you're just going to drive into the nearest telephone pole. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not good. I was better off on foot. <laughs> in mid-1964, sovereignist sentiment remained far from popular within Quebec, with a McLean's CBC poll showing that 43% of Quebecers wished to remain in Canada and only 13% wished to leave, with a further 23% undecided. My real admiration, though, goes to the 21% of people who straight up claimed not to know anything about the issue. We are proud of our ignorance, and wow, is there a lot of it. I admire that kind of dedication to not following politics. However, the politics of the issue had begun inexorably to shift. Premier Lesage opened opposed independence as disastrous for Quebec, but the Quebec National Assembly nonetheless held public hearings on the issue in mid-May, consulting various experts to assess the likely social and economic fallout of separation. Lesage's government had never been fully united on the issue, however, and on May 9th, the leader of the faction within the party that held separatist sentiments, Minister of Mines and Natural Resources René Levesque, broke ranks, declaring to an audience of 400 Collège Sainte-Marie students that cooperative federalism, where Ottawa made policy decisions through heavy consultations with the province, would only make a greater mess of something that is already somewhat of a mess, instead calling for Quebec to become an état associé, an autonomous state operating in close association with Canada. Quote, without guns and without dynamite, if possible. So you mean like a province? It's gonna become a province? Which it already <laughs> fucking is? Yeah. <laughs> I want it to be a semi-autonomous region that like is part of Canada, but like makes its own- Yeah, that's a province. That is a- that's- <laughs> you, you had to do nothing. <laughs> Canadian provinces have always had a fair amount of autonomy. They have entire huge swaths of policy areas such as education and healthcare that they have unilateral control over. Oh yeah, because the Quebec school system is weird as fuck. I think just because they can, they're like, ha ha ha, we dare we have drinking age that is one year lower than the rest of Canada and also we only go to grade 11. <laughs> And then, then we have, have like, weird, <laughs> And then they have this weird half-college, half-high school that composes 12 grade 12 and 13. Yeah, because fuck you, it's Cégep. Have fun. <laughs> we just want, a, like, a third intermediate form of school. <laughs> it's like an airlock between high school and college that makes sure it gets all the puberty off you before you fully commit. <laughs> before you taint the rest of society. <laughs> 
these comments, uh, the, the whole without guns and without dynamite, if possible, comments, sparked math youth demonstrations in support of independence throughout several communities on Victoria Day, May 18th. The FLQ had reached another eddy in its power and capacity, with so many of its cells broken and its members behind bars. But as each cell was broken, another rose to take its place, like a Marxist Quebecois hydra. Le <laughs> advised patience and the creation of a province-wide network of cells that could agitate for independence as a broad, effective movement, but without any real organizational structure, their prudence had had no hold on more impetuous felkists. Francois Schirm, 32, was a native of Hungary who had fled Budapest twice alongside his family as a child, first to escape the Soviets in 1944, and second to escape the Soviet-backed Hungarian government that arose in the wake of the war in 1947 after which they settled in West Germany. As a young man, Schirm left Germany to spend six years as part of the French Foreign Legion, where he fought in Vietnam and Algeria, and eventually developed a sympathy for the very insurgents he fought against. In 1957, Schirm moved to Montreal to marry a woman of Hungarian extract, with whom he had exchanged correspondence. The marriage quickly soured, and Schirm spent the next several years moving from job to job in Canada. I just want to say that Hungarian extract sounds like an ingredient that you buy to make perfect latkes. It feels like you could only get it in, like, little specialty stores where none of the employees speak English. <laughs> Hungarian extract. Yeah, it feels illegal. There's not, like, a good translation provided. And, like, you just have to guess what it says. <laughs> and, like, the price <laughs> is suspiciously low. Like, maybe they did not pay import taxes. <laughs> It's like vanilla but like, extract, but made out of a European nation. Don't you like it when, like, you see, like, foreign aisle foods where, like, the translation is, like, definitely not right, but you can't figure out what it possibly could be? <laughs> I live in East Harlem. That's just grocery shopping. <laughs> you just have to, you just have to sacrifice a nearby pigeon and try to, like, read the entrails for what the hell is in aisle five. <laughs> Nothing is labeled. There's just a sign that says fruit. It's your job to figure it out if you're supposed to eat it with breakfast or with rice. <laughs> uh, while Schirm had no little connection to the history of the Quebecois, he too felt exploited by the province's predominantly anglophone bosses, leading him to develop contacts among Quebec's own radical sovereignist fringe. He, alongside two former members of the Canadian Armed Forces, founded the ARQ, the Armée Révolutionnaire du Québec in June 1964, and in July, set up a base camp consisting of a handful of tents and a hunting cabin in the woods near the village of Santa Boniface de Schoenigan, 160 kilometers northeast of Montreal. Wait, did- Yes. Did you say that he was mad about Anglo buses? Bosses. Oh, I thought you said buses. But, I was but like... there will be people- there will be people later who are very angry about Anglo buses. I want you to know that. I was gonna say, this man- Joined a terrorist faction to support a cause he didn't care about because he was mad at public transit? New York is doomed. <laughs> see, see, the funny thing about that, Janelle, is I haven't even got to the mouvement du liberation du taxi. Oh. Which were a group of militants who were absolutely furious at a bus company. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a great deal of change in North America has come about as a result of dissatisfaction with buses specifically. They, they firebombed a bus barn. <laughs> We're going to oh. talk about it later. <laughs> All right. <laughs> the army itself was no more than 12 recruits. Uh, Shirm, who they called the general, led them in firearms and insurgency training. 
However, the ARQ had limited resources in terms of money, food, and notably guns, which are important for an army to have. Hmm. <laughs> uh, Sherm decided to solve this problem through an armed robbery of the downtown Montreal premises of the International Firearms Company. An extremely ambitious target, considering neither Sherm nor any other member of his merry band of men had any experience in how to conduct a holdup. They didn't have, like, an outlet store on the edge of town they could go for? They gotta go right to the downtown location? Downtown <laughs> Montreal, man. You can't just steal guns just anywhere. You have to get the best. There's there's 12 of you. You could honestly arm yourselves through shoplifting at this point. Yves Labonte may have laid the bomb that killed Wilfred O'Neill for kicks, but nobody agrees to perform a high-risk operation like an armed robbery on behalf of a strange Hungarian man who lives in the woods with a bunch of fit 20-year-old men and calls himself the General without a reason. Syriac de Lille had left the Air Force after struggling to learn English and lacking any hope of advancement. Marcel Tardif was exposed to the bigotry of his fellow servicemen in the Navy and discharged after a bout of depression. Gilles Brunet was a happily married father of five who left school at the age of 16 with a sixth grade education and supported his family through what little he could make through menial jobs. Edmond Gaynet was just a 20-year-old kid. On the afternoon of Saturday, August 29th, the five men piled into a stolen Pontiac, the violent separatist car of choice, apparently, <laughs> before heading to the target. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're getting sponsored by Pontiac anytime soon. Uh, however, they stopped at a tavern for a round of, or two of beers to steady their nerves before heading on to the gun store. As one does, you know. One wants to, always wants to drunk rob a, yeah, a gun store. Yeah, just take the edge off. <laughs> the only thing better than regular robbing a gun store when you have no experience doing it is, is definitely intoxicated gun store robbery. There's no chance this goes poorly. <laughs> Slower reaction times are probably the the armed robber's greatest asset. <laughs> Remember, kids, don't drink in crime. They arrived at the gun store on Blurry Street shortly before closing. Sherm and young Gaynet entered through the front while Delille drove the others around to the back. Sherm asked the clerk for an M1 rifle, which the clerk handed over. Sherm stepped back, inspected the gun, and said that it cost too much. He then nudged Gaynet who pulled out another semi-automatic from his jacket. Sherm pulled a clip from his own pocket, slotted it into the M1, and pointed the rifle at the clerk. Quote, We don't want any money, just rifles and ammunition. I mean, why even go through the charade of making this poor guy feel like this is all about his pricing? Why, why the pageantry? It's also wild to imagine a Canada where you can walk into a gun store, ask to hold a gun, and they let you. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen a gun store in person. No, because in order to get a gun license in Canada, it takes six months in an interview with your ex-boyfriend. Uh, the store's 58-year-old vice president, Leslie McWilliams, walked into the showroom. Oh no. As this was a gun store, he likely did not immediately understand what he saw. Perhaps interpreting the situation as two customers mishandling the merchandise and harassing the staff. McWilliams <laughs> shouted, don't be crazy, don't do that. At which Gaynette <laughs> wheeled towards him and fired. Striking oh. Williams in the abdomen. I want to think that his only words were, what the fuck did I just say? <laughs> Brunet entered via the back door with an unloaded pistol, went upstairs, and collected the store's secretary, bringing her downstairs to prevent her from using the phone. Sherm and Gaynette rounded up the other employees, approximately ten in number, forcing them to the back room. 
past McWilliams as he lay dying on the showroom floor. One of the employees, however, managed to slip out the front door and alert two nearby police officers. The constables spotted Brunet and Talif exiting the back door carrying weapons and ammo and ordered them to drop the loot and lie on the ground. Shirm stepped out of the building and fired on the officers, who fired back, forcing him to retreat. Shirm then escaped out the front alongside Gaynette. The officers entered the building and saw a man climbing the stairs from the basement, armed with a rifle. Oh, fuck. One of the officers commanded him to stop, but the man kept moving, saying, Oh no, I'm an employee. I work here. Oh, God. Unsurprisingly, one of the officers still fired, killing a 37-year-old Alfred Pinnish, who was oh. indeed an employee. <laughs> oh, I mean, to be fair, I just work here is kind of a brilliant way to get out of robbing a place. <laughs> right? I mean, I'm not expecting that kind of, like, scheming from a group of people who cannot correctly bomb a bridge when it's down. <laughs> or people who can't figure out that they're the getaway driver when they're asked to sit in a strange car for two hours on a certain street. So my my uh, faith in their intellectual prowess is sort of waning, but... Hey, Janelle. These men are the leaders of the revolution. Uh, oh, oh God. You'll notice that Quebec is still part of Canada. <laughs> so, spoiler alert, this didn't go well. Gaynette made his getaway, commandeering a taxi at gunpoint. Shearm fled down the street, only to find himself cornered in a shed by police. After a short exchange of gunfire, Shearm, or rather international firearms rifle, jammed, and he surrendered, coming out with his hands up having been shot in the thigh. I, I hate it when your stolen merchandise turns out to suck. I mean, where's the customer service? Turns out it was overpriced. <laughs> so they had a point. This is basically a better business bureau visit. This is how they settle customer mm. complaints. Gunfights <laughs> in a shed. Gainette was arrested three days later when the authorities descended on the, descended on the St. Boniface de Shawinigan base camp. The robbery was a public relations disaster for the FLQ and widely condemned, to the point that the writers of Le Cagnier distributed a communique blaming the death of Pinnish entirely on the police and calling McWilliams a collaborator and a victim of his own stupidity in opposing the rightful actions of a sovereignist commando. Yeah, I'm gonna go with the best way to achieve French independence and have sympathy in the eyes of the French is probably not to gun down innocent people as they're at work. Just taking down the Anglo fat cats. One cashier at a time. Striking at the heart of power. <laughs> Ooh. The writers of Kanye further demanded that the captured ARQ be treated as political prisoners rather than common criminals, as clearly marked militia fighting an armed civil conflict against a state actor, citing articles of the Geneva and Hague conventions. I don't... I don't think being deemed a political prisoner makes you entitled to extra cookies at lunch in prison, but, you know, whatever whatever you need to feel alive. You are equally in jail. <laughs> right? It's mostly a semantic distinction. It's not like the Canadian government was waterboarding them. <laughs> yeah, being held in Canadian prison is just, it's never going to be cool. Like, even if you served your nickel, like, you know, you have to pay attention to the exchange rate. <laughs> Canadian prisons are in the middle of nowhere because we've chosen the greatest defense we can have, which is Canada itself. It's like, you can escape if you want. We're not going to try that hard to keep you in. But the black flies will eat you before you hit, hit paved roads. 
<laughs> oh yeah, you can finish running away from prison just as soon as you unstick your eyelashes from each other because it's minus 48 in Edmonton. Good luck getting gored to death by an elk. <laughs> <laughs> really, it's amazing that Britain shows Australia as the penal colony and not Canada. You know, like the whole Alcatraz thing where they're like, we'll just put them on an island. They'll never be able to escape. We did that, but instead we just chose Kingston. <laughs> I mean, they can technically leave whenever they want. <laughs> it's just that they're so broken. <laughs> <laughs> Brunet and Tardif fast and pled guilty, receiving life and 20 years respectively. Delisle likewise later received life in prison. Shirm and Gainette, on the other hand, went to trial in May 1965. Gainette represented by a court-appointed counsel, while Shirm was representing his own self. <laughs> Grandstanding, well, that's never a good defiant, idea. praising Delisle for refusing to testify and denouncing Brunet as a traitor for his co- cooperation with police. <laughs> These guys are just so bad at not self-incriminating. It's amazing they didn't just, like, flag down a cop and admit to every time they'd, like, stolen a chocolate bar from the candy store as children. Both were found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. Oh, right, I forgot we did that. (laughs) Yes. Canada was real into the hanging thing for a while. We were super into it. You know how, like, you know how, like, in the U.S. they switched to, like... Electric chair, yes. Electric chair, and then lethal injection. No, you can't trust anything like a good bit of rope. <laughs> it's medieval up here. If it if it's not broken, Janelle, don't fix it. <laughs> and if you occasionally accidentally pop a man's head off like an overly stressed Barbie doll, that's just part of the fun. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I'm so glad executioner is not a job you can have. Uh, I just, I long to feel the warmth of my face of a convict's blood. (laughs) It's like the sun on your skin. Oh, this is why we don't let you do your own grocery shopping. (laughs) These death sentences were never enacted. The verdict was appealed up to the Supreme Court of Canada, and both men were granted new trials and were convicted again. But by that point, the death penalty was no longer legal in Canada. Gainette spent 11 years in prison and Shearm 14 before their eventual release, Shearm refusing a 1974 offer for earlier release in return for agreeing to deportation. He's like, nope, I'm staying here. I've... I am committed to the cause of free Quebec. <laughs> I just like how lax 1960s Canadian immigration is. They're just like, you're deported, eh? And then you can be like, no. That's how you <laughs> fight Canadian deportation. You just don't go. They don't, they don't order you to leave. They just sort of, like, passive-aggressively suggest it. <laughs> it, it it's, it's, like, it's like if you go to some, over to someone's house and, like, you overstay your welcome and you can tell they're getting testy. But, like, they're not going to say anything explicit. And until they do, you have plausible deniability just to, like, put your feet up on the sofa. <laughs> <laughs> Flawless. The spectacular failure of the gun shop robbery led to something of a lull in FLQ violence, and the rest of 1964 passed relatively quietly, beyond a few theft, minor acts of arson, and small-scale bombings. Oh, thank god, it's minor arson. <laughs> just just a few minor acts of arson. Like, just a few, nothing 60s. to be concerned about. It's just, yeah, you like, know, a, a regular amount of arson. Just just a, a, a purely typical, seasonal amount of arson. The normal like, amount. <laughs> the the arson forecast came true. 
just like the average amount of bombings six, 60s Montreal was quite high. You can become accustomed to a lot. <laughs> October 10th, 34 protesters were arrested in relation to a violent protest of a visit of, by Queen Elizabeth II, who gave a speech primarily in French to the Quebec Legislative Assembly, calling for a new understanding between Quebec and Canada. The Queen speaks French? Of course she does. She's, she's a woman of many talents. <laughs> <laughs> Admittedly, uh, I also did not know she could speak French. That's <laughs> the most shocking thing I've heard this podcast. Maybe she does what the Pope does, where, like, because, like, the Pope gives speeches in, like, tons of languages, because, like, Catholics speak tons of languages, and, like, they, they're not doing the Latin thing anymore. But, like, the Pope <laughs> just, like, has, like, in languages he doesn't know, just has it, like, transcribed phonetically in front of him, and he just reads off it and has no idea what the fuck he's saying. <laughs> oh, that's, that's exactly what Jesus wanted. But, I mean, he has to, Catholic... <laughs> Catholicism is not one of those languages where if you kind of run out of things to say, you can just roll your eyes back in your head and speak in tongues. It's frowned upon. No, it's it's a different sort of religion. Can you? I could not emotionally handle the amount of maturity I would have to have if I was his speechwriter. I just. Oh, good. Ah, <sighs> good. <laughs> the Wonderful. Uh, I'm like he doesn't speak this. <laughs> it's, it's so weird how in every language, you know, the Pope encourages the same values and, and the same, you know, he wants you to be pious, he wants you to be all these things. And and then in Polish, he just wants you to fuck your own mother and wear underwear on your head. It's so weird. And that's <laughs> the only language where his values change. He keeps telling them to set themselves on fire and roll around in gravy. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what that's about. But if, if that's what God wants... It's hard. I just know that God loves a good pole covered in gravy. That's what the good Lord wrote. <laughs> On February 16th, 1965, Ms. Michelle Duclos, a supporter of the FLQ and a member of the RIN, was arrested in New York for tr illegal transportation of 36 of dynamite across the Canada-U.S. border in relation to a, a plot to bomb the Statue of Liberty by members of the Black Liberation Front, a Harlem-based Black Power organization who had themselves been infiltrated by an officer of the NYPD. Oh, it's fun. They shared, like, little terrorist secrets. Like, they yeah. made each other terrorist organization friendship bracelets. Also, if you get caught smuggling things over the U.S.-Canada border in the 60s, you suck. There was, right? there was no passports back in the day. The only thing you had to do to get between the two countries was just look at a border guard and he judged if your eyes were too close together. Like, that's that was border security until 9-11. That's... <laughs> the line on the map was more of a suggestion. <laughs> They're like, you sound Canadian. Go on. <laughs> Have fun at Disneyland, you weird French terrorists. I, I just like that they were trading, like, recipes back and forth. That they were just having, like, a, a fun terrorist cultural exchange. <laughs> well, like a terrorist swap meet. Like, trading spaces, but, like, with dynamite. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's 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 fun. It's, they help each other out. You know, I've got this C4 I'm not using. You've got that TNT you're not using. Let's, let's help each other out. The night of the eve of Victoria Day, 1965, May 24th, saw many false alarms for the Vancouver bomb squad with only two true explosions. The true chaos, however, came that afternoon, when small, violent protests snowballed into widespread mayhem on the streets of Montreal. By police estimate, 
Two to three thousand young people ran through the streets of the East End, smashing the windows of a French-language radio station as well as several Franco-Canadian-owned businesses. Hmm. Eight police vehicles and a department ambulance sustained heavy damage, a police kiosk burnt, thirteen officers were injured, two severely having been hit by Molotovs, over 200 people were arrested, so none too gently, and 131 charged. This is like their most effective act of terrorism yet, and I'm willing to bet that like three quarters of the people involved were just randoms who thought this was a flash mob. <laughs> You're probably overestimating the amount of FLQ involvement, to be completely clear. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is, this is like, like, maybe 50 like hardcore separatists and like just 2,000 people who are just like this seems fun (laughs) in June Molotov struck but did not stop a CN freight train near little Saint Apollinaire because like a Molotov would not stop a train (laughs) (laughs) yeah because that's like trying to stop a garbage truck with a sparkler (laughs) You sandblasted a bit of dirt off the side, now they don't have to hose that part. Thanks. That same month, another two were derailed. One carrying potatoes from New Brunswick, the other Ontarian produce, which Lacanye claimed was to protect Quebecois farmers in Quebec's economy. Death to New Brunswick potatoes, which I mean are also mostly grown by French people, but uh, not the right type. We don't like those French people, it's fine. (laughs) These spuds are tainted with Franglish. (laughs) Just after midnight, leading to Dominion Day, July 1st, a bomb hit Westmount City Hall. That day, thousands of youths took to the streets in a demonstration that was far more organized than the Victoria Day demonstrations, limiting injury and property damage, though police made another 105 arrests nonetheless. Oh. July 2nd saw a bomb take out a tower of an English-language radio station in the city of Sherbrooke. So, so far, they're mostly good at committing... Low-level property damage, and then immediately going to prison. Those are the two things that they excel at. Being arrested, and inconveniencing municipal workers who have to repaint all this shit. Another ARQ-style camp set up by former members of the ARQ and members of the La Cogne group cropped up 110 kilometers northwest of Montreal, near the small community of La Macaza, and importantly, a Royal Canadian Air Force installation set up in association with NORAD that contained 28 surface-to-air missiles capable of carrying conventional or nuclear warheads. The seven men at the camp planned to attack the facility, despite their complete lack of any military or weapons training. Because, like, there's nothing better than a man who, with no idea how to use a gun, with as much gun as possible. Just gonna brute force it. Conducting a raid on a heavily armed military facility is mostly about confidence. (laughs) (laughs) Tinder and terrorism, basically the same thing. They spent a fair amount of time of their time marching about like infantrymen and darting into the woods to avoid prying eyes, bewildering nearby cottagers. Their plan was thwarted July 16th, when three of their number were prancing about the woods like heavily armed bunny rabbits, badly startling one of said cottagers, who then flagged down a passing boater and got her to call the cops. (laughs) Wow, taken out by a middle-class Karen on vacation. I mean, her name was Marion, but yes. (laughs) I like that you have the name and readily available. (laughs) Thorough. Another resident spotted all seven marching towards the facility and likewise called police. Hmm. Constables 
Roland Noel and on O'Neill Bourdain got the call, finished dinner, then responded to the scene. So it was real urgent. I mean, admittedly, they're a bunch of, like, provincial cops in the middle of nowhere, and Marion, from out, out at the cottage, says that she saw three men with rifles. It's probably not that serious in 90% of cases. Upon encountering six identically dressed men with rifles and hefty belts of ammunition in the middle of the woods, Noel advised them that without a hunting permit, he would have to take their names and seize their weapons, which they could reclaim later in exchange for paying a small fine. Wow. <laughs> a hostile takeover of French Quebec thwarted by a hunting license. Uh, Noel even collected some of the weapons and began to walk back to his vehicle when there was an explosion, forcing him to die for cover. The seventh member of the group, hidden in the foliage, then fired on Noel, grazing him and instead striking another member of the camp. This resulted in a fair amount of blood and screaming. It's like the dumbest people alive are playing the purge. Noel scrambled away, running to the cruiser to call for help, but found himself unable to make contact due to the remote area. In the chaos, three of the men overpowered Bourdon, one holding a rifle to his back, another to his neck, and a third stealing his service revolver. They handcuffed him behind his back and marched him away, leaving most of their supplies behind. Noel returned to the camp, found three of the men looking after their downed fellow, threw them his first aid kit, then left for a nearby residence to call for help. <laughs> Solid enough plan. I mean, you may have just kidnapped my partner, but here is some fresh gauze. <laughs> <laughs> it's the least I can do. That is just unbelievably polite. <laughs> You're a lying monster, but can't let you go with an antiseptic. Two hours later, Noel here heard a gunshot and feared that Bourdon had been murdered. In fact, Bourdon's captors had simply marched him into the wilderness, and after a night of cold, fitful sleep and a day of trudging through the mist and mosquitoes with no food and little water, they unwisely left Bourdon unattended, at which point he escaped, found a road, and made his way to a nearby farm where he rather startled the farmer sitting on the back porch peeling potatoes, not the least because Bourdon was still handcuffed. The Sûreté du Québec, the provincial police, led the manhunt, consisting of around 50 officers, dozens of local volunteers, tracking dogs, and a helicopter. But apparently, pensioners who like to holiday in the backwoods will be the true downfall of the revolution, because on the 21st of July, an elderly cottager spotted the fugitives and called it in, leading to their capture five days after Bourdon's abduction. Goddamn Phyllis, you've done it again. Phyllis! <laughs> Why must you deny the freedom of the Quebecois? <laughs> <laughs> she fights for Anglo supremacy by night, gets fitted for a pacemaker by day. And in the evenings, she calls Carol and asks if she wants to come over for whist. <laughs> <laughs> May 1966 saw a turn in the nature of the bombings. From a concentration on symbols of federal Anglophone power and the colonial oppressor to a focus on businesses that found themselves in dispute with employees and unions. May 5th, a teenage boy looking like a messenger entered the front of the La Grenade Shoe Company. La Grenade, meaning, ironically, the grenade, or less ironically, the pomegranate. Why does why are those words the same? That's dangerous. The word grenade and pomegranate itself comes from a Latin word which means seeded fruit. And then people made grenades and say, hey, this kind of looks like a pomegranate. Great. You know, just make sure you know which one it is before you <laughs> split it open to steal its bounty. 
The company had been in a year-long labor dispute over pay, which currently rested at $1.05 an hour for the men, 90 cents for the ladies. Oh. Uh, Respectively. <laughs> I see how it is. Yeah, this was very much an era where uh, legal discrimination between men and women's pays was very much a thing. Uh, <laughs> that being respectively about eight uh, fifty-seven and seven twenty-six an hour, uh, respectively, <laughs> in modern terms. Those are some homeowning uh, wages. The young man handed the box to the first person he saw, saying it was a return from an unhappy customer who would call later to explain. He then quite abruptly left. A few minutes later, the package exploded, seriously injuring 57-year-old André Lagrenade, 51-year-old André Lagrenade Jr., and 28-year-old Viateur Sirois, an eight-months-pregnant employee who Ooh. was blinded in the attack. Ooh. It likewise killed Thérèse Morin, André Lagrenade's 64-year-old secretary, who had returned a few minutes early from her lunch break. Three other employees received only minor injuries. Okay, so they've they've graduated from bombing unwanted dumpsters and empty fields. To murdering a grandmother and blinding a pregnant woman. Yes. <laughs> alright, okay. If this was a Fallout video game, they'd be shunned by their community, but alright. A group of five fellow footwear manufacturers in Quebec offered a $2,500 reward for information, while labor leaders made no public condemnation of the attack. Nor did they say anything in opposition to the May 22nd bombing of a factory of Dominion Textiles in Drummondville, northeast of Montreal. On June 3rd, one of the two bombs planted in the bathrooms of the Paul Sauvé Arena in Montreal went off during a Quebec Liberal Party rally as René Lévesque held the podium. The head of the Montreal bomb squad, Léo Pouf, called it no more than a big homemade firecracker. See... I would just like to, like, spare a moment of sympathy for the Montreal Bomb Squad. <laughs> they had what was called a Spooner suit, created by the Spooner Company, who likewise manufactured the very first commercially available bulletproof vest, to respond to a series of bombings in New York during the 1940s. But unfortunately, the suit did not work with dynamite, because of the supersonic shockwave dynamite creates, which is enough to kill a human being and usually sprays up a great deal of shrapnel. Generally speaking, the people who were taking care of these bombs were a single officer completely unprotected. Uh, Leo Plouf and later Bob Cote generally took personal charge of many of these bombs rather than allow their men to face danger. July 14th saw another explosion near a Dominion textiles factory, this time in Montreal proper, in the poor neighborhood of Saint-Henri, the blast came before 10.30 that evening from outside the factory, and employees rushed out to see the source of the commotion. There they found a, that a long-abandoned blue 1958 Plymouth Savoy, parked close to the building, had been heavily damaged in the explosion. Its front end destroyed, left fender sheared off, ground littered with glass and metal. Oh, it's... she's still good. Just buff it out. <laughs> She still drives better Buff than my out. father's 1997 Toyota Tercel. Count your blessings. 29 feet in front of the vehicle lay most of the mangled body of a thin young man, though parts of him were found up to 89, uh, 89 feet away from the body itself on the banks of the nearby Lachine Canal. The body was identified as that of 16-year-old Jean Corbeau. The writers of Le Cognier had praised the La, La Grenade attack, 
but it was over a month before the police obtained concrete evidence linking members of the FLQ to the factory bombings. August 27th, the police arrested three suspects in the attempted armed robbery of a movie theater, one of whom was 19-year-old Réal Mathieu, known to police as a regular participant in violent political demonstrations. This combination of violent criminal activity and violent political separatist-associated activity raised police suspicions. Montreal police brought Mathieu down to headquarters and spent an entire night from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. questioning him. I was unable to determine if a lawyer was present. <laughs> Hmm, I'm just impressed that they didn't, like, race each other to the police station to confess. <laughs> That's probably why it took them a month to arrest anybody. They're not used to having to investigate this. Normally they trip over themselves as they rush in the door at the same time. Mathieu's confession led to police raids seizing both firearms and dynamite, arresting 15 and eventually charging 9 in relation to various thefts, armed robberies, and bombings, including those of the La Grenade and Dominion textile factories. The bombings had been planned by an FLQ cell led by Charles Gagnon, a former politics and economics lecturer at the University of Montreal, and Pierre Vallière, an ex-reporter, failed novelist, and significant contributor to La Cognée. Oh, he's depressed as fuck. I didn't know my high school English teacher joined the FLQ, you just described him to a T. That combination of, like, ex-reporter failed novelist and, like, <laughs> ideological leader of a terrorist movement. Deeply chilling. You know how, like, you always have someone in your life where you're just like, I don't think you'd shoot a school up a school, but if anyone I knew was gonna do it, it'd be you? <laughs> yeah, that's how I date. <laughs> Serge Denaire... 21, who had assembled the bombs, was a key witness as well as a key participant in the bombings. For the first attack, Damaris had picked up his accomplice, Gaetan Desrosiers, 17, from high school, drove him to a park two blocks from the La Grenade factory, set the timer, and handed it to him. After the drop-off, the two met up, called in a warning to the factory via a payphone, then Demare dropped Desrosiers off at school and returned to his work at a World Fair construction site. Demare was likewise behind the Liberal Rally and First Dominion textile bombings. He's a busy guy. He's got a full social yeah. card. His his dance He's card got is a full. Lot to do. <laughs> of parts of Montreal, he wants to wipe right off the map. I'm just like, that's amazing. You're a terrorist, have a full time job, and engaging in like the the separatist version of Big Brothers, Big Sisters. I could barely manage to exercise every day. <laughs> <laughs> For the second Dominion textile attack, Demare picked up Corbeau in a truck from in front of the Montreal Forum and drove to the factory. He handed him a bag with the bomb, shook his hand, and retreated to a nearby restaurant, which was to act as their rendezvous. Demare left when he saw emergency vehicles speeding towards the factory and concluded that something had gone wrong. That evening, Demare met up with several other members of the so-called FLQ Central Committee who agreed to cease their activities. So, like... Killing this secretary wasn't enough, but accidentally killing a 16-year-old that they'd met in person, that was a lot. That's, that's where we draw the line. You know, we've got plenty of secretaries, we've got a few to spare, we'll pick up an extra one from a no-kill shelter. <laughs> <laughs> Just the secretary's shelter. Normally they put them down if somebody doesn't want them within 72 hours, but there's some no-kill shelters. We get the volunteers to take them for walks, do their taxes, you know, keep them sharp. Replaceable sixteen-year-old boys. On the other hand, now those are those are harder no. to come by. Most participants in the bombing submitted willingly to arrest and later pled guilty. 
but Valier and Gagnon, the ringleaders, fled capture. They reappeared on September 27th in the press gallery of the headquarters of the United Nations in New York, where they distributed a communique and introduced themselves as emissaries of the FLQ, aiming to create an independent socialist republic out of the province of Quebec. (laughs) That's not an easy place to get into. No. (laughs) Or I I assume it's not anymore. (laughs) I have a friend who works there, and they won't even let her in half the time. They declared they had begun a hunger strike in protest of the treatment of their imprisoned comrades and the refusal of the governments of Canada and Quebec to recognize them as political prisoners. The political equivalent of a toddler who holds their breath till you give them a popsicle. Genius. (laughs) They returned around 10 a.m. the next day with signs in English and French that read that they were FLQ hunger strikers. (laughs) How accessible. (laughs) <laughs> At which point they were arrested by the NYPD on request of the MPD. <laughs> I'm glad that they committed treason in both official languages. Valier and Gagnon refused to return to Canada voluntarily and were instead extradited. <laughs> Deport me, bitches, I dare you. <laughs> They're like, okay. <laughs> All right. Done. Lacanier went silent for three months from mid-June to mid-September. The first page of the return issue was an apology to the Corbeau family for the combat death of their son, whose demise they blamed largely on the parasites of the working world rather than the separatist-aligned terrorist who handed him the bomb. I'm not sure that's an epitaph you can put on a gravestone. Killed by parasites of the working world. Forever missed. I'm not sure his parents would have appreciated it. <laughs> yeah. Their next issue, on October 16th, denied that Valier and Gagnon had had any connection to the FLQ and that the FLQ was in any way a communist organization. Which is funny, given that Valier, up until fleeing the country, had been a major contributor to Lacanier. Details. Um. Yeah, it's like, he's he was your former editor, dude. <laughs> like, he was on your staff. Like, you can't tell me that you don't know the guy when his employee of the month poster is still up on the wall. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, you mean my mom, the person I have a million photos with? No, never heard of her. Who's she? I have legal documents to say I came out of her, but mm, nope, not ringing a bell. Elizabeth Como, that's not a real name. Mm, Sounds fake. (laughs) Send her back to Hungary. It's true enough that as a relatively loose collective, one cannot really say that all the members of the FLQ were communist, or that communism was its primary goal. But a large part of the FLQ's intellectual leadership, the majority of its overseas inspirations, and a sizable number of their recruits were explicitly communist, due to the attraction their pro-working class anti-bourgeois messaging had for far-left-aligned university students and disaffected workers. Mm, They're like, we just want student debt relief and better wages, but I guess if we also want to commit small acts of terrorism in the name of a free and independent Quebec, we'll do that too. There's only so many times you can say Anglo-Saxon capitalists before you're not allowed to act surprised when people assume you've read a few chapters of Das Kapital. Mmm, big nerd. Listen, most of my knowledge of capitalism comes from a childhood browser game called Lemonade Stand, so... (laughs) Literally never heard of this before, but I'm amazed. You ran a lemonade stand. I always ran out of money for supplies. That I had to sell unsweet lemonade and all my customers hated me. <laughs> Haunting. <sighs> this, that, is, that is the sort of thing they'll give you nightmares. <laughs> Just giving people unsatisfactory lemonade. Listen, I'll be Comrade Como if it means never having to see the shame in my parents' eyes as my failed lemonade stand goes under. 
and our family starves. You'll be at the, f- the front of the barricades, just openly mm. weeping, brandishing a lemon. <laughs> On October 28th, conversely, Le Devoir published a letter written by 16 faculty members of the University of Montreal declaring solidarity with Gagnon and Valier and defending their use of violence in the name of socialism. I mean, talk to me when you've got McGill professors on board. Let's be snobs. <laughs> University of Montreal, what? You couldn't yeah. get into Laval? Is that the problem? <laughs> this is going to be incomprehensible to most of our listeners. But yes, uh, McGill is sort of a very elite university within Canada. It was uh, traditionally Anglophone. And that's going to be important later, because it's going to get bombed a lot. (laughs) They're called the Harvard of the North by themselves and themselves only. Boo. Boo. (laughs) (laughs) The only people who are allowed to call themselves the Harvard or anything is actual Harvard. And even then, I kind of want to nut them. (laughs) I was going to say, Harvard is kind of north enough. It's it's cold there. I want to headbutt them. I don't even have any concept of what Harvard is like. All I know is that I hate everyone who's ever been there. And I defend that. (laughs) I don't even care. The first time I wear a Columbia sweatshirt in front of Jessica, I'm going straight into traffic. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take you out. (laughs) I see you near a scrap of powder blue. I'm going to taste your blood. (laughs) Thank you. That was threatening and arousing. Let's continue. (laughs) You're going to find your skin on my lamp. You better watch yourself. All right, thank you, Ed Gein of Canada. That's that's your title, Ed Gein of the North. <laughs> I'm proud of that. I'm going to be a uh, prestigious lampshade. I'll prop up your cert- like your master's degree right next to it on the wall. Thank you, that's all I wanted. It's only right. <laughs> Gagnon was the youngest of 14 children, the son of a lumberjack slash farmer, who managed to get an education and found himself radicalized by his time as a volunteer for the Chantier de Saint-Henri, who distributed food and clothes to the poor of Montreal. Valier was the eldest of three and grew up in the unpaved, sewerless suburb of Ville-Jacques-Cartier, across the river from Montreal. <laughs> grew up son of a lumberjack and grew up in a neighborhood with no toilets are two of the most French origin stories you can have. It is almost stereotypical how impoverished and French these two were. Like, Gagnon, <laughs> his family couldn't afford enough mattresses for the whole family, so he slept on straw. <laughs> That's the most French upbringing I can think of. Valier spent his youth at odds with his mother, his teachers, and almost everything and everyone else. He worked at a bank, then a brokerage house, wrote a book, submitted it to a publisher, then destroyed it when it was rejected, wrote another book, then destroyed that, wrote a third book, almost finished it, then threw the manuscript into the back of a garbage truck. He joined, then left a Franciscan monastery, got a job at a bookstore, quit his job at the bookstore, got a job in construction, left Quebec to visit France, found it kind of shitty, and had to ask his mom to send him money so he could get home. He got fired from several jobs writing for newspapers and magazines on account of his radical separatist views, read a frankly ridiculous amount of socialist literature, tried to start an independent radicalist separatist magazine alongside Gagnon, organized some protests, then finally joined the FLQ. Ugh. Wow. That's, That's quite the origin story. He's just French Job. Who, like, and he's not old. <laughs> like, no, he really packed a lot of failure into very few years. This is the man 
who said yes to life, and life said no fucking way. (laughs) The fact that you're so much of a failure you can't have fun in France is very telling. Valier wrote a manuscript in less than four months in prison, standing in his tiny cell and using the upper bunk as a writing surface. The writings were entirely in pencil, as pens were banned, and Valier claimed that he was simply writing notes to his lawyer, who collected and took sections of the manuscript out of the prison with him whenever he visited. I mean, one, of course he can't have pens. They could be turned into plastic explosives. <laughs> yeah, he might He might bomb the lower bunk. <laughs> uh, Valier's book, uh, all 524 pages of it. That's a lot of standing. I would get a crink in my back. I My neck would be, like, my neck would be a slinky. It was published March 15th, 1968, during Valier's trial. The book was a call for armed proletariat uprising and a critique of the exploitation of the working class, featuring a historical comparison between the state of French Canadians to African Americans on struggle for civil rights. Its title was Negre Blanc d'Amérique, which I am reluctant to translate. Uh, Janelle, would you mind opening a web browser? Oh, you're gonna make me say some slurs. I'm not gonna make you say anything. I just want you to look at it. I mean, I'm... Valier book. Uh... V-A-L-L-I-E-R-E-S. E-F? S. Oh. I was like, I know French has silent consonants, but that's pushing it. (laughs) This is ridiculous. What next, W? Oh! (laughs) Oh, I'm not going to say that on the podcast. I thought I was ready for anything. I was not prepared for that one. All right. No. All Uh, right. Roughly translated, it means white Negroes of America. Sure. It it doesn't, though. It it almost says that, but it really doesn't. (laughs) It really, really doesn't. (laughs) No. Uh... Uh, And in English, and notably in most French dialects, it is a pretty loaded thing to say. Uh, uh, yeah. The one exception is Cajun French, where Negre is simply a friendly pet name along the lines of honey, buddy, or pal, and has no racial connotation in most contexts. Yeah, so uh, that's what he called his book. (laughs) Oh. 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 Yeah. All right. Well, that's striking. I mean, he's saying that about himself. Yes. And, like, this was not uncommon rhetoric from French Canadians at the time, who saw their struggle as very similar to, like, civil rights era blacks. And, like, there is a certain similarity. The economic exploitation, living as an undermined economic caste, sort of being singled out as an ethnic group, and having both subtle stigma and institutionalized discrimination. But, like, Valier goes quite a bit farther than that. He talks about, like, the French-Canadian working class being imported to Canada as cheap labor, just like the slaves were. So, don't give him too much credit. (laughs) The difference between Quebec French and Acadian French is that the Quebec French are deeply offended when you insult their culture, whereas you can go up to an Acadian and be like, you're an unlovable bog monster... And they'll just sort of, like, invent a new kind of pie and call it a bog monster. That's... (laughs) They embrace it. It becomes an affectionate term between lovers. 
Serge de May reversed on much of his testimony, leaving the crown with only a weak case against Gagnon and Vallière. Gagnon was acquitted of murder, but convicted of conspiracy to commit armed robbery, which was struck down. He was finally released in February 1970. In the case of Vallière, the prosecution used his political writings as proof of him inspiring his followers to violence. He was found guilty of manslaughter, but the verdict was overturned by the Quebec Court of Appeal. He was found guilty again, but had the, and, and had the verdict overturned again, and was eventually released in May 1970. Negre Blanc became an extremely popular text among militants and was otherwise widely read elsewhere. The Gagnon and Vallière... Uh, Gagnon and Vallier likewise had a fair amount of moderate, even mainstream support. Nothing more charming than a dude who calls his book. (laughs) Oh oh my god, you know. Who wouldn't want to flock to that? Uh, He's their new leader. A master of nuance. In June 1968, Vallier wrote to one such supporter, former CBC journalist Jacques Leroux Langlois, If you really want to get us out of here before independence comes, you'll have to take drastic steps. A political kidnapping. Two influential members of the Quebec government or the Trudeau government, or maybe two judges, who would only be released in return for our freedom. It would only take a dozen serious guys. Two guns, a camp, or isolated farm, and somebody to issue communiques. That's all. You guys are French. Storming prisons is what you do. We could have had Canadian Bastille Day. Uh, admittedly, the police have become slightly more sophisticated since the French Revolution. But wasn't it funny when, like, the French just walked into a prison and stole all the prisoners? That was hilarious. The funniest thing is that there weren't enough, but they were like, eh, we'll just rough the place up a little anyway. (laughs) This isn't nearly as cool as we thought it would be in our heads. We're still gonna celebrate it every year for the rest of our existence. They, They celebrate, as France's national holiday... The time they broke into a nearly empty prison, found it wanting, busted it up, and left. <laughs> 1967, the 100th anniversary of the British North America Act and the Confederation of Canada was a quiet year for bombings in Montreal. La Cognier published its last issue in April of that year, before going completely silent. This lull meant that the 1967 Montreal World's Fair, styled as Expo 67, went ahead smoothly. One visitor was none other than French President uh, Charles de Gaulle, who arrived in Quebec City on July 23rd, first to travel to meet the Premier in Montreal, rather than uh, first visiting the Prime Minister in Ottawa, as would be standard diplomatic protocol. The federal government had been concerned about de Gaulle's visit well beforehand, not the least because de Gaulle had neglected to attend ceremonies celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Canadian victory in, in French Vimy Ridge that very April. Although, what I find like most about this is the fact that Charles de Gaulle basically has a name that means Chuck the French. And I find that very appealing. He's like the equivalent of the no-name brand they sell at Superstar, where they just write beans on the can of beans. Yeah, it just says apple beverage, and it says, like, good enough. (laughs) (laughs) He's just a little Chucky Frenchman. (laughs) He's just a Superstar brand Frenchman. De Gaulle was greeted by rapturous crowds when his ship landed in Quebec City, and everywhere his motorcade stopped along the road to Montreal. Francophone newspapers estimated that around half a million Quebecois greeted the French president, though Anglophone papers forwarded a more conservative 100,000 maximum. I mean, it's each Frenchman counts as like a fifth of a person. 
When de Gaulle and his entourage arrived at the Montreal City Hall at 8 that evening, half an hour late, they are greeted by a crowd of thousands. 15 to 20,000, according to the Francophone Press. Hmm. At least 3,000, selon les anglophones. (laughs) What we need is to find a Spanish press and see what they say. As, like, a neutral arbiter. (laughs) The Switzerland of journalism. We need need Somali immigrants to just, like, step in the middle and just decide how many people were there. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently this is getting a little political. De Gaulle was supposed to do no more than make a brief appearance with the pre- with Premier Johnson and Mayor Drapeau, but De Gaulle went immediately off script, leading the crowd in singing La Marseillaise, the French national anthem. For the playing of the Canadian anthem that followed, De Gaulle stood silently while the crowd hissed and booed. <laughs> I mean, Canada doesn't have decorum during the anthem like the Americans do. You can kind of just do whatever the fuck you want as long as you're not rude. So being silent for the anthem's fine. Standing is fine. Hand over heart is fine. It's all fine. It's all fine. Hissing and booing, less so. (laughs) Less fine. It's a good song. Come on, guys. It's it's partially in French. We've split custody of the anthem like it's the child of divorce. You know, there's an Alcaluit version now. Well, that's fun. It's like a divorced child of polygamy. It's getting... (laughs) It's fine. We're figuring it out. Yeah, it's good. How could I have a shattered identity in middle school? But when it comes out of university, you'll understand this was all for the best. (laughs) As the French president, the premier, and the mayor turned to go inside, the crowd began to chant, We want de Gaulle. To the balcony, to the balcony. When de Gaulle arrived on the balcony, the chant changed, the crowd crying for a speech. A Radio Canada technician supplied a microphone, and de Gaulle indeed made a speech. One that ended with the words, Vive Montréal, vive Québec, vive le Québec libre. Long live free Québec. So this is a major diplomatic faux pas. (laughs) This is not the done thing on the international stage. (laughs) It's like, you know, taking a dump on your boss's desk the day you give your two weeks notice. It's just not done. Although it's actually a bit more like taking a dump on your boss's desk than going to your cubicle and working as usual. (laughs) Because de Gaulle was still going to be president afterwards and still needed to have a working relationship with the Canadian government. And while the Canadian government had repeatedly ignored undiplomatic comments and slights made by de Gaulle in the past, this was a breach of protocol too egregious to ignore and Prime Minister Pearson's office issued a statement on the 25th saying, The people of Canada are free. Every province of Canada is free. Canadians do not need to be liberated. (laughs) Which is one of the more polite ways to state it, and I bet that was not the first draft. (laughs) De Gaulle cancelled his planned trip to Ottawa to meet the Prime Minister and ended his stay in Canada early, flying back to France on the 26th, two days after his arrival. Awkward. This is when you show up to dinner and leave after half an hour. Like you had an appointment you forgot. (laughs) Like when you walk into a room, fart, and then leave. Newly appointed Canadian Justice Minister Pierre Trudeau mused publicly about about what the French reaction would be should the Canadian Prime Minister shout Brittany to the Bretons. (laughs) 
Brittany Ooh. being a region of France that had high separatist tensions at the time. <laughs> uh, well, none of us died in World War Three, so I'm assuming that they didn't say it. There was only two of those. So far. <laughs> Jesus. Another political tremor came that October at a provincial liberal policy convention. René Levesque's proposal of an independent Quebec in association with Canada went to a vote and received only four out of 1,500 delegates. Wah, wah. Levesque and his supporters left the Liberal Party to found the explicitly separatist Parti Québécois. In November, a new FLQ magazine arose entitled La Victoire, with a more militant tone and a fresh new professional look. Oh, turn your pens into plastic bombs wasn't militant enough? They're like, how can we amp this up a notch? Yeah, it got more menacing, which I'm just like, is that possible? And they're like, yes. <laughs> there was a ceiling and we burst through and now we're on the roof. And in 1968, the bombings began anew. February 28th saw a large violent dom- demonstration against a 7-Up plant in the Montreal suburb of Mount Royal. Protesters hit the factory with Molotovs, set fire to utility boxes, battered two police cruisers and a news station car, and disrupted municipal signage. They, they're committing equivalent amounts of damage as a bad hailstorm. You would have caused as much inconvenience to the city if they had just accidentally left those two police cruisers outside of the garage. Right, like, haha, we dinged your car. A litter carrier found an explosive in a mailbox, which was successfully dismantled. In early May, the SQ reported that 50 sticks of dynamite had been stolen from the Dominion Lime Quarry, a note with a note graffitied on the wall, Merci, FLQ. Interesting. So, it's like, like at one least they're st- polite. It's like one step away from an IOU 20 missiles. In April 1968, Pierre Trudeau won leadership of the federal Liberal Party and succeeded Pearson as prime minister. He soon thereafter announced a federal election to acquire a new mandate, with the date set for June 25th, a day after June 24th, St. Jean-Baptiste Day, Quebec's national holiday. I was going to say the 25th does generally follow the 24th. You're correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is not just me being unusually thick in a very clever sort of way. There <laughs> was a reason it was important. <laughs> Good to know. Although I did have one time when I asked my mother what day it was, she turned to me and said, It's September 17th, Jessica, the day after your birthday. <laughs> Listen... Orientation to place and time is difficult. Many people struggle. Don't judge me, mother. (laughs) Trudeau campaigned under the slogan, One Canada, One Nation. As he traveled the country, met everywhere by enamored crowds, as the 20th century's most inexplicable sex symbol at the height of so-called Trudeau-mania. Then unmarried, Trudeau was extremely popular among young women associated with 60s counterculture, as he was known as a charming, eccentric intellectual. He had a charisma and cult of personality that is genuinely unusual in Canadian politics, as we usually just pick the most boring man possible and make him wear a sweater vest. (laughs) That's true. Who's got the most impressive mustache? You get over here. Our political culture is genuinely suspicious of symmetrical men. (laughs) (laughs) The uglier you are, the more we want you to lead us. It's just, that's really what we look for in a leader. Just a fucked up jaw. (laughs) Lead us harder, daddy. 
I'm not comfortable with talking about ugly politicians and the words lead me harder, daddy. It makes me think of Jean Chrétien and that upsets me. I was going to say, there's a reason I've never met Jean Chrétien. Because a security detail would be upset by the things I was saying. I don't know. I don't I don't think he needs a security detail. I'm pretty sure he can take you out by himself. He's, he's like an 84-year-old man. He's not going to survive learning what Dom Daddy Little Girl is. You say that like he doesn't already know. Oh. <laughs> oh no. I'm just saying he's lived his life. <laughs> you shouldn't judge that. <laughs> Gonna judge anyway. Saint Jean Baptiste Day, 1968, Montreal. The parade began at 9 p.m. The masses of protesters, however, had already begun to gather in large numbers in La Fontaine Park by 7. The first arrests began at 7.30, and the fighting came an hour later. It would not stop until 1 o'clock that night. Demonstrators hurled bottles and rocks while police charged into the crowd with batons. One group of protesters tear-gassed the police using Jet Commando tear gas, a product sold only in the U.S. (laughs) That's bold. I mean, it's incredibly stupid, but it is bold. Uh, Police made 293 arrests. 12 cruisers were damaged, as were untold private vehicles. 43 officers and 83 spectators were injured, as were 17 horses. I don't know about the people, but I can report that every horse made a full recovery. Well, that's the only thing I was concerned about. (laughs) Yeah, like, my sources never made any mention of how anybody else did, but they were very clear that the horses were fine. (laughs) They know where our priorities lie. I know you don't care about the police. I know you don't care about the protesters, but the horses, they were fine. Every, every Frenchman is like one sixteenth of a horse. It's just basic math. In front of the city library, across from La Fontaine Park, a reviewing stand had been set up to allow various dignitaries, such as Mayor Drapeau, the American Count Consul, uh, Harrison Burgess, and the British Trade Commissioner, James Cross, to observe the parade. Shortly before 11, demonstrators mounted an attack on the viewing stand, even once for a period of only three minutes, managing to break police lines and approach the stand. As the rest of the officials on the viewing stand scrambled back, retreating to the library for safety, one remained. Pierre Trudeau, sitting alone at the front of the stand, leaning against the rail and smiling. I mean, he had to sit down because the weight of his enormous balls... (laughs) would otherwise send him off kilter. With those kinds of brass fucking cojones, do you think he actually could have made a break for it? Or would they would have just dragged him down as the crowd descended, baying for blood? (laughs) Yeah, he was gonna go down with the ship. He understood the risks (laughs) when he had his balls dipped in gold. Like, he understood. (laughs) I'm not even a man, but I just crossed my legs. This is a man with four testicles. It's so late at night now that I had to think, like, is that the normal number? No, that seems like too many <laughs> testicles. <laughs> that, uh, I don't, I'm not terribly familiar, but it that feels off. I haven't done math in a while. <laughs> <laughs> but I have handled a man's balls lately, and I feel like there weren't four of them. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe the new boyfriend's just a freak of nature. You never Jesus. know. You never know. I am so glad he doesn't listen to this. He won't get a conversation of how many balls he has. <laughs> just a 2 tested man. Ugh. Just tragic. 
<laughs> the normal number is tragic. I mean, the more the merrier, really. Jessica has high standards. Jessica's like, I'm not gonna touch a penis, but if I do, it better have eight testicles and not a single <laughs> one less. I just want the I want the testes surrounding the shaft like a flower opening to the sun. Oh, I'm so glad you don't have sex with men. The first time you try to open his penis to the sun, he's gonna <laughs> have some issues with that. <laughs> there were a total of 46 bombs planted in the Montreal metropolitan area from August 1968 to February 1969. Some struck civic and federal symbols, such as the Black Watch Armory, the Montreal Central Post Office, and fr a frankly much-abused statue of Canada's first Prime Minister, John A. Macdonald. Aww, I'm man. not saying he didn't deserve it. I'm just saying, at a certain point, the pigeons that live on that statue have to feel personally attacked. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's just too damaged. Let the pigeons take him. He belongs with them now. Another bombing hit the home of Albert Tange, governor of the Bordeaux prison, which held the Gagnon and Valier. Most, however, were aimed at companies in the midst of labor disputes, usually factories and business premises, but occasionally the homes of upper management. It quickly became clear from the construction of the bombs that two separate groups were behind the attacks. One group's bombs being distinctly better constructed, apparently having been modeled on bomb-making instructions found in La Victoire, far less likely to fail due to technical error. Interesting. Getting roasted by the head of the bomb squad has to be pretty embarrassing. The bombs were largely planted at night, at least initially, as a sort of concession to public safety. But that was certainly not always the case, and it's hard to argue that the bombers really thought through the potential for casualties. On November 21st, the bombing of a liquor store in dispute with its employees half an hour after midnight blew out the windows of the four-story apartment across the narrow alley where the bomb had been planted, leaving residents huddled together for warmth in the streets, wearing a combination of pajamas, overcoats, and winter boots as emergency responders arrived. God, dude, everyone knows you blow up buildings in the beginning of the day. After the kids go to school and the parents go to work. That's- everybody knows that. Everyone's born knowing how to take over a small country. <laughs> it's just something you're born with as a Frenchman. <laughs> it's instinctual. <laughs> Maybe he's born with it. Maybe it's a 300-year bloodlust for the English, you know. <laughs> Maybe it's Maybelline. <laughs> it's not Maybelline. You cannot make bombs out of Maybelline. No, it's, please don't try. It's Bix only. Fuck. Um... <laughs> The next day, November 22nd, at 3.52 a.m., a bomb destroyed a customer locker room in the basement of the nine-story Eaton department store for the crime of selling tricycles and wagons built by scabs, causing around $25,000 in damage, though thankfully sparing all 30 members of the cleaning staff on site. They really have a problem with maintenance worker locker rooms. The core of power, the center of Anglophone dominance is the staff locker room. <laughs> you cannot run this country without a healthy application of WD-40 to all of the hinges. I've got an Amazon wishlist and the WD-40's in stock. Let's do this. <laughs> Duct tape to the masses. Duct tape, I say. <laughs> to every floor a mop. And to every mop a floor. <laughs> uh... The store opened at its usual time that morning, regardless, 
but at 3.20, an anonymous call to the CKAC radio station warned that a bomb was going off in the Eaton Jewelry Department in 10 minutes. The store was evacuated by the time Bob Cote of the bomb squad arrived. The bomb was in a shoebox-sized cardboard box, but the amount of tape used meant that Cote couldn't clip the wires. Instead, he pushed in the alarm button to stop the clock, picked it up, tucked it under one arm, and walked out. The assembled crowd, thinking the emergency was over, gave Cote a rousing ovation. (laughs) They're like, yay! He's just sweaty. (laughs) The police took the bomb to a large park where they successfully dismantled it. The bomb had been set to blow five minutes after Cote had stopped the clock. Hmm... Not quite the down-to-the-wire photo finish I've come to expect from Hollywood, but still close enough. Yeah, like, that's already uncomfortably close. (laughs) I don't need a photo finish. I don't think he should leave it for the drama. I'm good with five minutes of margin. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I need. The wider the better. I don't need it it to be a race to the finish. I mean, I know (laughs) it's more exciting, I know it's more Hollywood, but I'd rather not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, New Year's Eve saw three bombs shortly before midnight. One planted on the east side of Montreal City Hall exploded, while another planted on the west side of the building under Mayo Drapeau's office was successfully dismantled. The third exploded in an alley beside the Revenue Building. The shockwave from the blast ricocheted back and forth between the buildings on either side of the alley, breaking 800 to 1,000 windows and raining shards of glass, wood, and metal, as well as chunks of concrete. Yet the explosion was heard as far as 13 kilometers away. They really are determined to inconvenience the Canada Revenue Agency. <laughs> like, what do you have against taxes? And I'm aware. <laughs> Everything. people have something against taxes. But what specifically... <laughs> Is it about the revenue building? <laughs> right, it's... You just need a lawyer. You don't need plastic bombs. You just need somebody to explain taxes to you, and you're pretty much good. Early in the morning of January 8th, an anonymous caller to the, a francophone radio station claimed a bomb had been planted at the home of the Montreal chief of police. Shortly thereafter, a bomb exploded at the home of a contractor who merely lived on the same street as the police chief. Oh... On the bright side, he is a contractor, so he can probably get, like, a good deal on getting his exploded house restored. You know, just just nothing a little duct tape can't fix. That's what I always say. Jessica 2020. Nothing a little duct tape can't fix. <laughs> it's gonna be a terrifying year. <laughs> the Federation of Independent... Canadian unions had contributed $1,000 to the city of Montreal's large reward for information leading to the capture of the bombers. And in the middle of the afternoon on Tuesday, January 21st, the union's vice president, Donna Martin, noticed a plastic bag in the stairwell outside of their offices. Looking inside, he saw a clock and four sticks of dynamite. Just a casual package. Is it better than flaming dog poo? I can't decide. Hey, Carol, I think there's something for you. (laughs) (laughs) Martin called the police, who barely managed to evacuate the three-story building before the bomb went off. One of the two responding constables, a Lionel Boucher, was just slipping out of the door when the blast threw him to the ground and he skidded into his own cruiser. 
January 24th, Charles Labarre, an employee of the Davidson brokerage firm, noticed a brown paper bag outside the office of Naranda Mines. Inside, he heard a clock ticking. The Naranda Mines office, notably, were located on the 8th floor of the 11-story Bank of Nova Scotia building in downtown Montreal. Labar notified the building switchboard operator, who called police, then informed Henri Passmore, the bank's head of security. Passmore took the elevator to the 8th floor, picked up the bag, walked to the end of the corridor, placed the package in the concrete stairwell, and closed the door. Okay, reasonable. What were they doing with it before? They're like, I guess we'll just leave this out with as many of us crowded around it as possible. Yeah, I don't think they were just standing around it gawking like chickens, but I'm I'm not sure exactly what they did. (laughs) They mostly left it to Henri. Apparently, they they thought he could handle shit. (laughs) Well, no. Upon arrival, police advised everyone in the Davidson and Naranda offices to lie on the ground. The bomb went off a few minutes later, shaking the entire building. The Montreal Stock Exchange composed the third and fourth floor of the Tour de la Bourse, then the tallest building in Canada at 47 stories or 637 feet. Thursday, February 13th, in the middle of a busy trading day, minutes before 3pm, a massive explosion felt as far up the building as the 21st floor. 27 were sent to the hospital, mostly with shock. The exchange opened the next day at 11, a mere hour later than usual, using chalkboards to write stock quotes by hand due to the damage done to the exchange's electronic board. Canadians make do. There was a hardier kind of stock trader back in the day. They have it too easy today, stock traders. I want them to trade stocks with Canada and New York manually, run the stocks to each other. In order to be in order to be a stockbroker, you have to be like an Olympic level athlete, and we expect you to run from Montreal to New York City. <laughs> Good luck trading with Japan. Godspeed. <laughs> Eleven p.m. February twenty second, another bomb hit the Reform Club associated with the Quebec Liberal Party. However, that day the club was hosting completely apolitical anniversary party for a Mr. and Mrs. LeBrock, which was rudely interrupted when a bomb exploded in the exterior stairwell leading to the basement, blasting a hole in the wall and blowing the windows out of eight other buildings up and down the street. I do hate it when that happens. So inconvenient. So inconsiderate of my needs. Injured were two middle-aged women working the cloakroom, a passing driver who had his taxi lifted half a foot off the ground by the blast, mm. and a seven-month-old baby who was asleep in her crib when shards of the window hit her in the face. I blame the baby. The baby's fault. <laughs> all of it. The accident. All of it. Another Anglo-oppressor collaborating with the ruling authority, trying to interrupt a sovereignist commando in defense of his nation. (laughs) She was lingering in that crib with intent. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a crime? It feels like it should be. Lingering in a crib with intent. March 3rd, police raided the apartment of Pierre-Paul Geoffroy, catching him in the act of assembling yet another bomb. The apartment was, to put it gently, a bit of a mess. Oh no. Filled with dirty dishes and heaping ashtrays, strewn with old newspapers and bomb-making paraphernalia. Well, that gives a man away. Not a married fella. Not a married fella. That is a, that is a single man. This is a man who lives alone. Bomb-making par- paraphernalia, also a sign of a single fella. Yeah, men in stable relationships don't tend to build plastic explosives in the living room. 
The wife will not have it. You go you go out to the garage with that. In the living room, there was a bookshelf made of bricks and boards, heaped with books on communism and various revolutions, as well as a black and white poster of Che Guevara. This is just a college student's bookcase. This is just your typical undergrad. (laughs) (laughs) Detectives initially wanted to hold off on evacuating the building, as they would lose the opportunity to use the apartment as a trap to find Geoffroy's roommate and accomplices, However, the bomb squad found two more bombs, as well as 96 sticks of dynamite in a locked metal trunk. Oh, As well as a second trunk filled with yet more dynamite. 65 sticks and plus 35 sticks of Pentomex, another form of explosive. All in all, more than enough to blow the entire block to kingdom come, meaning the police had to evacuate all of the surrounding buildings. Maybe they were just trying to build a highway? (laughs) They were just enterprising young men attempting to build a tunnel between Montreal and Longueuil. <laughs> permits? Who needs that? You know, we don't need permits here in Quebec. Well, we need a little bit of know-how. Even though they have maritime accents when you say it. All three bombs were successfully dismantled, though Cote actually noticed a nasty little addition to the third. A piece of cardboard stuck wedged between two copper wires attached to the battery. Ooh. the completion of the electrical circuit. A booby trap that would cause the bomb to detonate should anyone remove it. Likewise found in the apartment was a handwritten list of places that had been bombed and copies of La Victoire, including bomb-making instructions. Which, it feels like you should have hid that. At the very least, don't keep a list of all the places you hit. That's probably essential. Don't don't brag about that. This is nothing to keep a diary about. <laughs> like maybe he had one of like one of those ones from the nineties where like you you have like a voice password, like, one of the pink ones with like the feathery pen. I had one of those, a voice activated passcode diary. The password is filthy Anglo's. <laughs> Wouldn't have wanted anyone to get to such dark secrets as Today I hung out with my friend. It was fun. I'd have been ruined. Geoffroy confessed to bombings of the 7-Up plant, the RAQ liquor stores, the Black Watch Armory, the Reform and Renaissance Clubs, the Revenue Building, City Hall, the Eaton Department Store, the Canadian Federation of Independent Unions, Miranda Mines, several homes, several other businesses, and the Montreal Stock Exchange. His justification for the Naranda Mines bombing was no more than that a security guard at a mine 650 kilometers north of Montreal had been fired on the unproven allegation that the firing was a response to the guard's activity as an outspoken advocate for unilingual French schools. Interesting thing to be controversial and fireworthy. Now, fancy Anglo people send their kids to French immersion school as a status symbol. I know, because I meet them all the time and they're like, oh, it almost goes the same way every time. They're like, oh, I went to French immersion for seven years. I can't speak a word of it. (laughs) Did you just stare at a wall for seven straight years? How did you pass high school? (laughs) I have no idea. I don't understand how you can be exposed to a language for nearly a decade of your life and not really get it still. (laughs) Mm, Stubborn, raw determination. With a little bit of hard work and a lot of dedication, you too can remain a filthy, ignorant monolingual. Geoffroy told the police that he had been a a liaison between two distinct cells, which generally met at his apartment for planning sessions. The dynamite at his apartment apartment apparently belonged to the entire group, and he generally left a key beneath the doormat in case anyone needed to access it when he was out. 
He hmm. refused to reveal the names of his co-conspirators, claiming to know them only by their nicknames, and that they had always called him to arrange meetings. The first guy not to rat everybody out. I mean, amazing, right? Look at him go. He immediately pled guilty, but, like, he did not rat anyone else out. Okay, we're still bad at fighting the charges, although in this case it may have been a little difficult. Yeah, like, they had him pretty much dead to rights here. <laughs> I don't think catching you standing over a half-finished bomb is, uh, defensible. It's hard to be more guilty than being caught with your hand in a bomb. <laughs> you could say that you're just feeling her up and it's a sex thing, but I, I don't know. I don't think they're gonna buy that. Never mind the pounds and pounds of dynamite you have in the back. <laughs> Fair. When you have enough dynamite... To evaporate the surrounding block, you're probably guilty. I don't know of what, but something. When you've got enough supplies to rush more the nearest mountain, probably yes, we should look into you. When you could dig your way halfway through the Earth's mantle if you sneeze at the wrong time, you probably have too much dynamite in your apartment. Geoffroy pled guilty to 129 charges related to the bombings including four counts of illegal possession of explosives and one count of breaking and entering, and received 124 separate life sentences, as well as five five-year sentences for the lesser charges. Oh, because of course we couldn't let him go unsentenced for those, those lighter charges. No, do we have to be thorough? <laughs> Officially, this is the harshest prison sentence ever given out in the British Commonwealth, at least on paper. It feels like overkill. It feels like you can just say, no parole, and let it roll. <laughs> <laughs> is that your new catchy slogan for you trying to train parole officers to keep French terrorists in jail? No parole, let it roll. It doesn't rhyme in French. Well then, fuck those frogs. While Geoffroy never revealed their names, police quickly determined the likely identity of his accomplices. Alain Allard and Pierre Charette were the first subcell. Michel Lambert and Norman Roy were the second. All four men went to ground after Geoffroy's arrest. They fled in pairs to New York, where they hid out for a short time with a chapter of the Black Panthers. Back in the day where you could just be a wanted criminal and just get on planes to wherever the fuck you wanted. <laughs> That's a really funny statement. Because on May 5th, Alar and Charette boarded a National Airlines flight to Miami, which they hijacked shortly before landing. I mean, that's one <laughs> way to make sure you get on the plane. Just active participation. They burst into the cockpit with a knife and revolver and forced the pilot to continue on to Havana, Cuba, where they remained in exile for the next decade. Oh, <laughs> oh, that's a longer number than I thought you were going to say. Yeah, especially because, like, most of the people who got sentenced didn't get sentenced that long. <laughs> Feels like you don't nearly need to run from the law. It is, <laughs> after all, the Canadian law. <laughs> <laughs> Roy likewise left New York for Cuba before traveling to Algeria. Lambert returned to Montreal, bummed around for a bit, took part in the Murray Hill taxi riot, then fucked off to Paris before rejoining Roy in Algeria were both trained under the Palestinian Democratic Resistance Front, a communist militant group under assumed names. Uh, those names were Selim and Salem, and just in case you were under the impression that these two were particularly innovative or clever. We got one name, we like it, just modify it slightly. I promise this won't be confusing. 
Uh, they were discovered when a journalist went to embed with the Palestinian Democratic Resistance Front and was just, like, kind of confused by these two dudes with Montreal accents. <laughs> In fairness, people from Montreal find the Montreal accent startling. My boyfriend from France, whenever he hears Canadian French people, he just follows them in public. Because he loves the accent so much. He's like, it's like going back in time. It's like a confused puppy. He followed this Canadian family halfway through the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. Because he was just so entertained. <laughs> just like hearing period actors in person. We were there to learn about natural history. He was just there to learn how dumb Quebecers sound. You can't say he didn't have a learning experience. It was very educational. Bois remained in exile until 1972, Lambert until 1979. All four were arrested upon their return. Allard and Charette receiving sentences of six months, Lambert bear a suspended sentence of 12 months, and Bois 30 months. I mean, compared to the rest of the sentences, that's basically getting sentenced to, like, having a sleepover and eating graham crackers. That's a pretty mild sentence. Considering that the bomb maker got 124 life sentences plus 25 years? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that man got enough time for all of them plus 120 other people. <laughs> I sentence you to a warm snuggle from a cute puppy. Back in 1969, with the Joffrey network disbanded, March and April held no further bombings, though they were far from quiet for Montreal, as by now violence was the norm for political demonstrations, thanks to a small core of professional agitators who were quick to enact, escalate, and respond to violence of any kind. The first bomb of the next wave exploded on May 2nd at 10.20pm, behind the building of the labor-embattled Montreal Construction Association. The blast was a small one, only really managing to startle the night watchman, who was inside at the time. That's even less property damage than, like, blowing up a mailbox. You startled a watchman. You got his heart going, and, like, that was probably actually better for him. N watchman is a very sedentary career, and he could have probably used the cardio. <laughs> yeah, you made one person's day momentarily worse. Congrats. A communique from the bomber read, We will avenge the imprisonment of the patriot Pierre-Paul Geoffroy and carry on his work to decolonize the people of Quebec. At 2 a.m. June 15th, a bomb destroyed the rear wall of the building containing the Saint-Jean-Baptiste Society in the city of Sherbrooke. The bombing was apparently a response to the SJBS, Sherbrooke's office's invitation to Prime Minister Trudeau to attend its Jean-Baptiste Day Parade, an invitation they quickly rescinded. Uncomfortable. Keep your prime minister and his 12 testicles away. <laughs> oh my god. I'm just saying, man had like a foot of scrotum. <laughs> it would look like a bunch of grapes. <laughs> Early in the morning of July 16th, another bomb exploded at the entrance of the headquarters of Fitzpatrick Construction in the Montreal sub suburb of Notre-Dame-de-Glace, throwing a pedestrian, George Sarapolis, off the sidewalk and into the street, causing only ma minor injuries. Rude. Yeah, they were attacking the Greeks. So basically they were mildly rude to a couple people and startled one guy. One dude got a bit of a boo-boo, similar to how you would if you, like, took a dive on roller skates. Successful, then, overall. The bomb squad found remains of a brown faux leather suitcase, similar to those recovered from the bombings of the residence of Albert Tanguay, governor of Bordeaux Prison, on September 18th the previous year, and the attempted bombing of the of Montreal pol police chief that very January. 
confirming that in fact there had been two distinct groups behind the bombings. July 7th, the front entrances to five separate construction companies were bombed between 5.15 to 7.30 a.m. August 10th saw a bomb explode outside a finance company in Mount Royal shortly before midnight. Around 2.30, a night watchman called in a suspicious cardboard box in the laneway next to a much beleaguered National Revenue building and called it in. (laughs) Uh, A police crew arrived just as the bomb exploded, lifting the car off the road. Next, a dozen incendiary bombs were planted in the same Eaton's department store, though thankfully they were discovered before they could hurt anyone. Because that's how you win the revolution. You blow up the perfume aisle. (laughs) Take this, luxury goods. The Anglos may have won the war, but we smell better. Uh, I'd probably have an asthma attack if I was near a bombed perfume aisle. I would be another casualty. I was gonna say from the laughing or the perfume, or maybe both. (laughs) It'd be a combination. By the end of the week, they also hit a union office, a provincial ministry of labor building, Quebec City and then went silent, likely in response to an announcement of increased surveillance of terrorism suspects, interjurisdictional police cooperation, and security around government buildings by Provincial Justice Minister Remy Paul. The Justice Ministry likewise requested that private companies improve security, (laughs) that news organizations play down coverage of the bombings, and that the public report any suspicious activity. I mean, there's certainly a great deal of suspicious things going on if you're a non-essential government building or a mailbox. The tax man better watch it. They'll slightly fuck up your locker room. Don't test them. The quiet lasted until September 29th, when a bomb placed in the exterior stairwell leading to the basement of the home of Mayor Trapeau exploded, causing a crater three feet across and 16 inches deep. The ground floor had buckled, but Drapeau's wife and adult son had been asleep upstairs. They were thus shaken but unharmed. I was gonna say shaken but unharmed just sounds like me after undergrad. That's how I like my martinis. Shaken but unharmed. (laughs) That's me after most of my early sexual experiences. That's how I feel every time I wake up in a public place after another one of the episodes. What the fuck? That's also how the, uh, the librarians feel when they find me sleeping on the floor without shoes in the middle of the day. <laughs> it's because they're not sure, is this is this library homeless or library corpse? You're not giving them a lot of great options. Inner city librarians have seen some shit. They 100% have. <laughs> they are hardened. The police increased security on various public figures, and there was widespread uproar in the local media regarding the incident. But all that was quickly overshadowed by the events of October 7th, when the Montreal police and firefighters walked off the job en masse in an unofficial strike following acrimonious contract negotiations with the city. I was joking about the purge earlier, but I guess no. The purge. Initially, around 400 provincial police were called in, but that number doubled as the day continued, before finally the provincial government requested the assistance of the Canadian Army, who sent 106 members of the 22nd Regiment, because what followed was a wave of armed robberies and looting throughout the city. That evening came the Murray Hill Taxi Riot, which began as an uh, ostensibly peaceful protest by the Mouvement de Libération du Taxi, or MLT, against the Murray Hill Limousine Service's monopoly on the Montreal Dorval Airport. I say ostensibly peaceful because the moment the convoy of cabs encountered a Murray Hill limousine, they stopped it, allowed the passengers to leave with their luggage, then beat the shit out of it. (laughs) Okay, so we have two very different definitions of friendly. (laughs) Sparing the lives of innocent passengers before beating their driver to a pulp is not exactly what I'd call innocent, but you know. They they didn't drive- They didn't beat the driver to a pulp. They beat the shit out of the limo. 
Or did you think I was calling the driver an it? <laughs> I was unsure. It's very late here. <laughs> the rioters waged siege to the Murray Hill garage, breaking windows and throwing Molotovs as Murray Hill security wielded shotguns and fired at the crowd indiscriminately from the rooftop. <laughs> at first I was like, why don't we learn more about this in school? But actually, no, now after sitting through so much of it, no, I understand. <laughs> it was nightmarish. <laughs> it is nightmarish. Yeah, they wounded around a dozen people and killed Robert Dumas, a plainclothes SQ officer, and one of two fatalities that day. The chaos lasted for over two hours until anti-riot police arrived to dispel the mob and quell the fighting. Over a hundred were arrested, over two million dollars of damage was sustained by the city, with half another million stolen by looters. Two SQ officers had likewise been severely beaten by a mob on St. Catherine Street, and peace only came when the provincial government passed emergency legislation forcing the Montreal police back to work, and the army arrived. That September, likewise saw a riot where supporters of French and English language schooling met and fought each other in the streets. Hmm, as one does. School board votes can get a little dicey. Every once in a while, you just have to look another member of the PTA in the eye, pull out your boxing gloves, and get to it. I didn't realize that school boards allowed trial by combat. I'm gonna walk into a parent-teacher interview just with a half a brick and a sock. <laughs> My kid doesn't even go here. Get ready. I don't even have a kid. I don't have any children, but you better watch it. Fuck. Equal access, bitch. The entire time I'm just gonna be singing the alphabet song in French. Well, that's truly haunting. <laughs> November 20th at 8.45pm, police received warning that a bomb was going to explode at the FX Bryan building at Loyola College an all-mailed high school-slash-post-secondary institution run by members of the Catholic Jesuit order. All 500 students in the building were quickly evacuated. Sergeant Aurel Godet arrived on the scene, parking in front of the building and exiting her cruiser, at which point the bomb exploded, ripping the main doors apart and just about totaling the cruiser. <laughs> okay, so once again, their main rage seems to be with masonry doors and cars. Just specifically police cruisers. <laughs> Their least favorite kind. A lot of cars have gotta die for Quebec to be free. <laughs> How many good vehicles must die young? How many Chevrolets? How many Hondas? <laughs> <laughs> How much paint must be scratched in this call for independence? Uh, on November 30th, a bomb dis destroyed a McGill University greenhouse. And on December 22nd, a 26-year-old postal employee collected some mail out of a post box, shoved the lot into his bag, then threw the bag into the rear of his van, oh, where it no. exploded, <laughs> destroying the vehicle. I like that you know there's an active mail bomber on the loose, and you're just like, how hard can I yeet this? Yeet. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I'm just gonna choke slam a mailbag into the back of a van. <laughs> Honestly, in his position... I would be, like, shaking every time I opened a mailbox. I would never open anything again. I would traverse the world in a giant, sealed human hamster ball. I would call my mother before every, every time I made a pickup. I don't know. <laughs> Things would get clingy and weird. Yeah, postal jobs for them were stressful for a lot of reasons. Oh, you know, the, the imminent risk of becoming missed and chunks. A little stressful. <laughs> And plus all the packages you get at that time of year. Just, you get overworked. 
But my holidays too, you know. These bombings remained unsolved for years. Until May 1972, when Georges Debray, a young firefighter, walked out of the door of his fire hall and into the police station next door. The, all of them are so bad at this. In Mr. Debray's case, he had some extenuating circumstances. <laughs> but I mean, they're just constantly on the verge of tattooing it across their foreheads. Excuse me, I am guilty. <laughs> Like, did they just chase me, down the police in public? Honestly, I think the police could have broken up this uh, this terrorist gang a lot quicker by just walking down the street and saying, Excuse me, are you guilty? Sir, sir, have you bombed anything recently? <laughs> <laughs> Madam, are you a member of the FLQ? <laughs> I imagine they just went sprinting after the police, confessing to everything from domestic terrorism and treason to taping songs off the radio. Honestly... The police had to have been trying not to hear this. They just, you know, wearing earplugs and they're like, why is that guy trying to wave me down? Like, oh well, this guy has Walkman on <laughs> even though it hasn't been invented yet. After being brought downtown, Dubois was placed in a quiet room where he spoke with detectives. He talked for a while, rambling about planting this bomb and that, before stopping, saying that he didn't want to talk anymore and he wanted to see a priest. Oh, uh, that's an unusual request. Confession? Exorcism? Last rites? It's a bit of a twist. Especially because none of his bombs killed anybody. <laughs> like, are you dying? <laughs> Just want to get molested? There was easier ways to do that. One of the detectives stepped out to talk to Lieutenant Detective Gilles Favre, who fetched a white scarf, hung it around his neck in a manner similar to a stole worn by a Catholic priest, and went into the room to sit with Dubois. Oh, that feels exceptionally illegal. Dubois wanted to pray, so Fogg knelt with him, and they prayed together at Latin. Dubois said he wished to make a confession to which Fogg responded, Okay, my son, go ahead. Oh, you don't have to be religious to see how quickly that man's going to hell. Just directly oh, to hell. That is Do not pass go. Fucking pass. Do not collect $200. Dubois started talking, but Fogg asked him to slow down. Quote, Whoa, my son. God won't be able to understand you. We'll have to write it down so it's exactly like you're talking to me, but you're talking to God. <laughs> well, that's the biggest <laughs> red flag I've ever heard. Holy fuck. The whole point of confession is that you don't leave a written record, but what do I know? I haven't been to church in a couple of decades. It's like directly from this dude's tent testimony, like, Jim Fogg is the one who told them that he did this. <laughs> and I'm just like, do you, are you sure you want your name attached to this? <laughs> because I'm pretty sure that I want to go take a shit on your grave. I don't know if you're dead yet. <laughs> Maybe you're just in the hospital. But I want to shit on wherever your body is currently lying. <laughs> Jessica will buy you a grave plot just so she can shit on it. <laughs> it will be my new outdoor toilet. <laughs> <laughs> You're exactly right. You, like, you do not have to be religious to know that this is deeply not okay. <laughs> it's, you know, it's it's deeply immoral and anyone who does this is probably going just so straight to hell. But, like, you know. I think at a certain point there is a level of evil where they just give you your own parking space. Like, you're not just going to hell. You're v going VIP. <laughs> For all of your... Evil parking needs. Uh, between bouts of prayer, Dubreuil gave a full account of the bombings, the name of his accomplices, a friend, Jocelyn Bonvie, 
her brothers Paul Bonneville and Alain Bonneville, the latter connected to the RIN. Dubois further implicated his own wife Muriel, his brother Jean-Claude, and another friend Jean Marceau. Dubois had learned to make bombs from Allo Police, a graphic and lurid true crime crime tabloid. Oh, so one, Jessica, stop giving weapons instructions on our podcast, because it turns out, (laughs) yikes. But two, uh, it's hard to see how they had to write each other out. All you have to do is say, I don't know, I learned bomb making from a man named Jean, and you are telling the truth. The one bombing he denied, however, was that of Mayor Drapeau's house. That one has never been solved. That was just a pissed off kid with too much spare time. Yeah, well, I mean, no one confessed to it, so, like, the police are just, they're still waiting. They're just standing on the street corner. Eventually, somebody's gonna walk up. It feels weird to be like, yeah, these are 17 bombings I committed, but that 18th one? No, fuck you. That I will deny. That's what makes it unlikely that he's lying. It's like, why would you lie about that one? (laughs) You're either really, really bad at this, or you're fucking with us. Either you lost track... Or you're being an asshole, and I'm not sure. <laughs> Dubois was arraigned alongside five others, but the state's case against his accomplices quickly collapsed when Alain Bonneville claimed that his statement was coerced through intimidation, and Mireille de- Dubois claimed that her previous statement to police was false in an attempt to shift blame from her husband. Dubois himself was excused from testifying due to his questionable mental health. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> It's kind of not hard to see why. Oh, is he going to ask for a psych nurse and are they just going to find a jaunty hat to put on a police officer? They're just going to bring out a constable and, you know, put him in a put him in a, a hot little nurse's number. I need a doctor. All right, we're going to wrap you in toilet paper. It's white. It'll look like a lab coat. Just go with it. Dubois was likely schizophrenic. Oh. And his psychological vulnerability and paranoia perhaps played a part in his decision to take the mission of Quebecois liberation and socialist uprising into his own hands. It's sort of like this weird thing where, like, most of the bombings were completed by, like, cells of committed Quebecois sovereignists. And, like, then there was just this one of, like, this easily influenced schizophrenic guy who saw the bombings on the news and was like, I have my mission. It's like when you see a really cool job in a documentary once and you're like, yes, I want to rehabilitate injured eagles, except it's like, no, I want to blow the fucking cornerstones right off the revenue building. While the Crown still had enough to charge Dubois himself, given his detailed confession, the prosecution declined to forward charges on the grounds of Dubois' cooperation, his mental state, and his newfound desire to enter a monastery and dedicate himself to religious contemplation. (laughs) Sounds fake, but okay. Pretty sure that's another sign of his mental illness, but cool. (laughs) Back in early 1970, all they knew was that this latest round of bombings seemed to have finally come to at least a temporary halt. Dun dun dun. Uh, we hope that you have enjoyed this episode, even though it contained the words bomb almost as many times as I have ever previously said the word. Bum, and bum, we will bum, see bum, you next bum, week bum, for bum, the conclusion bum. to the FLQ. I've been Jessica. And I've been a very tired Janelle. And we are fat, fat French, French, and, and fabulous. fabulous.